What is up, guys? Welcome back to Teens of Profiling. We are glad that you have returned. This is lesson three of unit one, and we are getting bigger and bigger, which also means we are getting better and better. So quick recap of last lesson. We discussed the first two steps of creating a profile, which are what? I'm hoping you said input and decision process models because that's the answer. Today, we will be focused on the third step of the profiling process, so it's fine if you didn't remember, I guess, you won't need that. Crime assessment. To me, this is the most interesting part, but maybe you'll disagree once we get to talking about investigation. But anyway, on with the lesson. Crime scenes tell a story. However, with a crime scene, investigators can't skip to the end like you can in a book, and instead they have to create the ending themselves using what they can find from the beginning and middle of the story, or the scene. Investigators and profilers must realize that they can only have a satisfactory ending, which is the apprehension of the unsub and return of the victim, if they give the correct insight into the human behavior of the unsub. Lots of patterns give shape to human behavior, like speech patterns, writing styles, and nonverbal gestures, and these individualistic patterns usually remain consistent, right? Take a second to think about something that you do the same every day. Could be like, your path to school, it could be your skincare routine, how you brush your teeth, what you like to clean first in your room. That's your individualistic human behavior. That's why investigators and profilers must learn how to recognize these patterns to distinguish between different offenders committing the same crime. There are three manifestations of behavior during a crime and they're modus operandi, signatures, and staging. All things you have probably heard before, but not every crime has all three or is required to. Let's begin with modus operandi, also called MO. In 1989, Nathaniel Coe Jr. was convicted of murdering eight people. There were major disparities between the crime scenes though, but the jury still returned a guilty verdict. The unsub gagged the first victim with a piece of metal at the first crime scene, but duct tape was used in the next seven victims. Again, the unsub stabbed and slashed the first victim, but the next seven victims were shot. The victims ranged in age and gender, and money was only taken from two of the crime scenes. So how did they link this one man to all eight murders? Doesn't it look like it obviously wasn't the same person? Well, that's because I described Code's MO, not his signature. While attempting to link cases, Profilers can make a big mistake by putting too much reliance on an MO. That's because MOs are dynamic, not static. All they do is describe how an unsub commits a crime, his mode of operation, MO, as you will. Like, for example, a burglar shatters a window to get into a house. He has to act quick, because shattering a window, obviously if someone shattered your neighbor's window, you would probably notice. Later. In subsequent crimes, the burglar brings a lockpick to use the door, so he attracts less attention and has more time to get what he needs. The burglar was improving his MO. He was changing it to better suit his needs of the crime. The MO is a learned behavior and not an innate need for the unsub, and it will evolve as the unsub gains criminal experience. But still, how did code get linked to all the murders? I'll give it to you, if the investigators had only looked at his MO, he would not have gotten convicted for all eight. But thankfully, he left more than his MO. He left a signature, also called a calling card at every crime scene. A signature is something the unsub feels they need or have to do, and it is unique and it's a part of the offender's behavior. A signature, and this is important, goes beyond the actions that are needed to commit the crime. So if you have a crime scene and you're trying to figure out 
what part of the case is the MO and what part is the signature? You need to ask yourself this question. Does this action go beyond the scope of what is needed to commit the crime? Was this action needed for the crime to take place? It can still sound similar to an MO, so I'm going to keep explaining. Offenders typically have violent fantasies before they actually get to, you know, committing a crime. And so as they daydream and their fantasies develop, they will always need a way to express them. When they're acted out, some part of the crime will display this. It will usually be in the form of a personal expression or a ritual at each crime scene. Simply committing a crime and going through an MO doesn't satisfy offenders who have a signature, and they must go beyond the scope of the offense. An unsub's personal ritual is their signature. For example, a rapist can demonstrate a signature by using extremely vulgar language, preparing a script for the victim, or even just engaging in acts of domination and manipulation. A use of excessive physical force that's not needed is also an example of a signature. The signature is static. Unlike the MO, it never changes because the unsub feels like they have to perform the signature at every crime scene. Signatures can evolve, such as a rapist who performs greater postmortem mutilation at each crime, but the theme of a signature remains consistent. The signature may also be missing from crime scenes due to things like interruptions or unexpected victim response. So just like the MO, an investigator or profiler can't just rely on a signature to link crimes, but the signature should be considered more than the MO as it is more reliable to be consistent and it's more reliable to be there. Next, we're moving on to staging. Staging is, well, exactly what it sounds like. It's staging. But we're going to take a step back before we start to analyze what it is. When investigators are looking for behavioral patterns, such as the MO or the signature, they attempt to find answers to many crucial questions, such as, how did the encounter between the offender and the victim occur? Did the offender ambush the victim? Did they use a ruse? What did the offender use to control the victim? What was the sequence of events? And so on. Sometimes an investigator will try to answer these questions, but the facts may be confusing, out of place. They may seem like there are things that were done in the crime scene that shouldn't have been done, and this is a sign that the unsub may have done some staging at the crime scene. Staging occurs when someone, the unsub or not, purposefully alters the crime scene before law enforcement arrives. Usually, staging takes place for one of two reasons, redirection or protection. The first reason, redirection, is exactly what you would think. It occurs when the offender is trying to redirect the investigation away from themselves. And a sign of this is when they act overly cooperative or completely distraught at an interview, but we'll discuss interviewing more at depth in a later unit. The second reason for staging is to protect the victim's family or the unsub. This type of staging is usually done by a family member or whoever finds the body, and sometimes they'll attempt to restore dignity to a dead or mutilated corpse. For example, a husband might redress his murdered wife, or someone might cut ligatures that were restraining a victim at the time of the kill, and this type of staging can involve even a fake suicide and even a fake suicide note with the body. At the crime scene, investigators must, I mean must, it is a must, Discern if the crime scene has been staged, as it can shape the offender's profile heavily. Recognizing a staged crime scene can be extremely difficult, especially with an experienced unsub who's staged before and even gotten away with it. However, unsubs who stage crime scenes usually make mistakes due to adrenaline high, if they're scared, um, if they're still feeling ecstasy or aroused from the crime scene and inconsistencies in forensic findings will begin to appear with close inspection. 
These inconsistencies can be called the red flags of staging. When looking for possible red flags, investigators should consider lots of things. For example, if burglary appears to be the motive, did the offender take inappropriate things from the crime scene? Um, I'll give you an example case. A man returning from work interrupted a burglary in progress, so the burglars killed him and fled. But when the crime scene was looked at, it showed that the burglars did not steal anything, although they started to disassemble a large stereo and TV. They left smaller, more valuable, easily transportable things at the scene, like jewelry and rare coins, and rare coins, without even attempting to take them. The police determined that the man's wife had actually paid the burglars to stage the crime scene and kill her husband because she had been having an affair with one of the suspects. Another factor that can have major red flags is the point of entry. Investigators always have to ask why the unsub entered the crime scene where they did. For example, why would an unsub enter through a small second story window even though there was an easier way in? Investigators always need to ask why the unsub would put themselves at higher risk by committing the crime in certain conditions like daylight hours or populated areas. More red flags can also come from forensic results. In other words, do the entries always fit the crime? Sometimes there are also disparities in witness accounts that can lead to the discovery of staging. Here's another example. A wife finds her husband in the tub with the water running, and the crime scene looks like he had slipped, fell unconscious, eventually drowning. But thankfully, police ran toxicology reports and they showed that there was a high level of drugs in his system, and there was evidence that he had been struck multiple times, not just once. The wife later confessed that she had laced his dinner with drugs and hired three men to come in the house and kill her husband and eventually stage the crime. So that's it for today and thanks for listening guys. Tomorrow we will be diving deeper into the different types of evidence and what each means in a case so super interesting. If you're on a Google Classroom, there are two super, super fun assignments. Like I want to do them really bad that pertain to this lesson, so please check them out. And join our classroom if you haven't already. Apologize for the lack of Criminal Minds references today, so I'll definitely make it up tomorrow. And I've seen in some of the comments on my TikToks that Bones is a good forensic science show, but I've never watched it. Also, Mindhunter... I love Jonathan Groff, and he's in it. I think I watched the first episode on Netflix, so it's probably good. So I need y'all to tell me if you've watched it. So I need y'all to go into the recent comments of like my latest TikTok and tell me if you watched Bones or Mindhunter and tell me if it's good and I should watch it because I'm not really sure that anything will live up to Criminal Minds, but I like I need I need another show. So thanks for all the support again, and I hope you learned something new.